This is the Veterinary ECC Small Talk Podcast, episode number 15, Canine Hemoabdomen, part 1. Welcome to this episode of the Veterinary ECC Small Talk Podcast, where it's all about small animal emergency and critical care. Primary survey, secondary survey, analgesia, fluids, shock, trauma we've got it covered and now here's your host never afraid to bring the jibber jabber it's Shailen Jassani hello and welcome to the veterinary ECC small talk podcast with me Shailen Jassani thank you for joining me once again today in today's episode I'm going to be talking about canine hemoabdomen I recently posted a question on Facebook as follows. When you hear about a collapsed dog, what are the top three differentials that come to mind? So this was a deliberately vague question, but between the veterinary ECC small talk page and the ER Vet Tech Rounds Facebook group, there were approximately 150 respondents. And hemoabdomen in particular due to splenic rupture was mentioned by approximately 80% of respondents, so I thought I would do an episode on this. Firstly, I would like to thank Janet Steps from the UK for your very kind iTunes podcast review. Janet writes, I thoroughly enjoy these podcasts. The topics are well chosen and have a practical base ideal as a refresher for the GP vet. Put across in a light, informative manner that keeps me looking for more. Well done and keep them coming. Well, thanks very much, Janet. I really appreciate you taking the time to give me that feedback. For today's episode, I thought I would delve back in time into the literature and base the podcast loosely around a paper from the Journal of Veterinary Emergency and Critical Care in 2008 entitled Clinical Evaluation and Management of Hemoperitoneum in Dogs. The authors of this paper include some real legends in the veterinary ECC sphere, Lee Herald, Jen Duvey, Becky Kirby and Elkie Rudloff, and they say, This clinical review combines a search of the veterinary literature with the clinical experience of the authors to provide a resource for the emergency management of hemoperitoneum in dogs. And I will, of course, include the reference in the show notes. I thought it would be interesting to see what, if anything, has changed in the last seven years since this paper was published. And I'm going to present the main points from the paper. But to be fair, there's quite a bit of my additional commentary as well that I'm going to throw in. And as always, if anyone wants a copy of the paper, then do feel free to get in touch. And I'm happy to email you one. Contact information will follow at the end of the podcast. The other thing to say is that there is quite a lot to comment on here, and so I've decided to split this topic over two episodes. Today is going to be part one of this two-part mini-series on canine hemoabdomen, and then part two will be published as usual in about two weeks' time. So let's start by talking about the causes of canine hemoabdomen. These can be divided into traumatic and non-traumatic, Undoubtedly, in terms of clinically significant hemoabdomen, non-traumatic cases are much more common, and the one that most people instantly think of will be rupture of intra-abdominal tumours 
and especially hemangiosarcoma lesions. But of course, this is not the only non-traumatic cause of canine hemoabdomen. Sometimes what ruptures is not a tumour, but actually a hematoma. And I'm going to say a little bit more about that in a minute. But we also need to be careful not to miss systemic coagulopathy manifesting with an abdominal bleed. Vitamin K antagonist anticoagulant rodenticides need to be borne in mind. And also, for example, in places where it is found, we need to be aware of Angiostrongylus vesorum or canine lungworm. So this is a parasitic disease that has been identified in many countries in the world and can manifest with intra-abdominal hemorrhage. Other non-traumatic causes include disorders of various intra-abdominal organs, such as gastric dilation volvulus, which can have some component of intra-abdominal hemorrhage. It could also be liver torsions, splenic torsions, and so on. But I think my main take-home message from this is don't assume that every dog with a non-traumatic hemoabdomen has a tumour. And in particular, please don't go chopping open dogs that have a primary systemic coagulopathy as the cause of their hemoabdomen. Obviously, some dogs will develop a secondary consumptive coagulopathy that needs to be managed along with the primary problem, but you really don't want to be operating on a rodenticide dog, for example. With respect to traumatic hemoabdomen, I don't know about you, but personally, I have not seen many dogs that have clinically significant traumatic hemoabdomen. In the past, it was more difficult to detect small volume bleeds, but in more recent times, with the growing use of focused ultrasonography, the abdominal fast scan has been increasingly adopted as part of the initial uh, assessment of trauma patients. So look, it may be that people are detecting traumatic hemoabdomen more often. I don't know if you are. I'm just offering it up as something that may be going on. But we still need to have that distinction between a traumatic hemoabdomen that is clinically significant and one that is good to know about and you know one that we need to keep our eye on but does not actually compromise the patient as such. Before we move on from causes of canine hemoabdomen, I do want to say a little bit more about hemangiosarcoma. To be honest, I was actually just going to do a whole episode on that subject, but I decided in the end not to. Nonetheless, when you are presented with a dog with a non-traumatic hemoabdomen, there are some things that you would like to know. So firstly, what is the probability that this individual dog has a bleeding structural mass as the cause? Secondly, if there is a bleeding structural mass, what is the probability that that bleeding lesion is a tumour rather than a hematoma? Thirdly, if it is a tumour, then what is the probability that it is hemangiosarcoma? Having this information available to you, obviously derived from analysis of good quality evidence, would be useful in terms of informing your conversations with the dog's carers. Of course, you would also want to be well informed on treatment options and prognosis for canine hemangiosarcoma. As I say, I may well do an episode just focused on hemangiosarcoma in the future, also looking, for example, at the relative prevalence of splenic hematomas versus hemangiosarcoma lesions, discussing potential errors that can happen during the pathology processing, and so on. 
But what I did for today's episode was to try and identify some of the papers that relate to the three questions that I posed earlier. I'm going to present a summary of some findings from those papers, but please remember that what we really should be doing is subjecting each individual paper to a critique and deciding whether we feel that it is a paper that's worth paying attention to and whether there are enough good papers to perform a meta-analysis or at least a systematic review. Now, I'm not aware of anyone having published that on canine hemangiosarcoma, and I certainly haven't done that for this episode by any means. So please do keep that in mind when listening to the numbers that I'm about to tell you, and I will, of course, list the papers that I came across in the show notes. So a sweeping superficial summary then of what I could find suggests that malignant neoplasia is the most common cause of non-traumatic hemoabdomen in dogs, occurring in approximately 65 to 85% of cases. And of those, approximately 60 to 75% are hemangiosarcoma lesions. So I'm just going to say that again in case you didn't get it the first time. So malignant neoplasia is the most common cause of non-traumatic hemoabdomen in dogs, occurring in approximately 65 to 85% of cases. And of those, approximately 60 to 75% are hemangiosarcoma lesions. So that's all I'm going to say about this for now. And as I say, I may come back and do an episode on hemangiosarcoma at some point in the future. In terms of the history, clinical signs and physical examination of dogs with hemoabdomen, I'm not going to say that much about this. Clearly, the history and clinical signs will depend to some extent on the cause of the hemoabdomen and whether the patient has had more than one episode of bleeding and what you're going to find when you examine the patient in terms of their degree of hypoperfusion will likewise vary between patients in part depending on the severity of their current bleeding episode. Although the question that I posed on Facebook was about dogs that were collapsed, not all dogs with hemoabdomen will necessarily be as bad as that. And clearly, as always, we have to tailor our approach to the individual patient. One thing that I do want to highlight from the paper is that the authors say at least 40 mils per kilo of peritoneal fluid is required to detect a fluid wave, making abdominal distension an insensitive indicator of early or slow-forming free abdominal fluid. And I think that this is an important take-home message, that neither abdominal distension nor feeling for a palpable fluid wave or a fluid thrill is a sensitive means of detecting free abdominal fluid. Radiography is a bit better, but ultrasound is better still, as well as obviously being less troublesome for the patient and so on. I did just want to pick up on the volume that they mentioned, so this minimum of 40 mils per kilo. To be honest, I'm just not sure how it can make any sense for there to be a cutoff that applies to all patients, especially when you consider the variety of breeds that we may be dealing with. And also, your palpation will be affected by whether the patient is standing or recumbent. And also, when it comes to palpation, you also have to factor in not just the patient, but also you, the person that's actually doing the palpation. So what is the variability between palpators? I don't think that palpators is a word, but anyway, you know what I mean. 
They do cite a reference in the paper that's from 1994, which unfortunately is not available online. But looking at the title, it is a general discussion article about the assessment and management of the hemorrhaging patient. And I would be very, very surprised if in that reference there's any proper evidence to support a 40 mils per, fi-、uh, per kilo figure. But nevertheless, if we park that to one side, the general point that the authors make is very valid and important to bear in mind. The authors then go on to say, and I'm going to read this bit word for word four objectives must be met during resuscitation efforts. One, to re establish and maintain effective circulating volume. Two, to diagnose hemoperitoneum and identify database abnormalities. Three, to maintain oxygen carrying capacity. And four, to arrest ongoing hemorrhage. The actions to achieve these goals are often undertaken simultaneously depending on the severity of clinical signs. When clinical signs indicating decompensatory shock are present, immediate resuscitation will preclude definitive diagnosis evaluation. However, a rapid assessment of the packed cell volume, total solids, And abdominal synthesis results can be evaluated to confirm a diagnosis of hemoperitoneum. So let's go on and look at those four objectives in turn. But before I do, I would be remiss, of course, not to mention that you need to make sure that you also provide whatever level of analgesia the patient requires. So the first objective they mentioned was to re establish and maintain an effective circulating volume. In other words, to address the fact that these dogs may be suffering from hemorrhagic hypovolemic shock. The authors touch on some of the debate and controversy about how best to resuscitate hemorrhagic hypovolemia. They make the point that overly aggressive crystalloid resuscitation is not considered to be the best way forward. The theory is that if we cause rapid increases in the patient's intravascular hydrostatic pressure, we may in fact. Blow off any clots that have been formed and actually promote further and ongoing bleeding. We can't leave the patient in a shock state, and on the flip side, we don't want to exacerbate the hemorrhage. So, what are you going to do? Well, basically, the idea is that you resuscitate the patient, but you do so carefully and in a conservative and titrated fashion so that you try not to overdo it. When you feel like The patient's perfusion status has adequately improved. You stop and just continue to monitor in case there is further volume loss and deterioration. So, the important point is that you are, you are both approaching your resuscitation more conservatively and stopping your crystalloid resuscitation sooner than you would perhaps otherwise,、um, let's say, in a patient with、uh, hypervolemic shock from GI fluid losses, for example. So, I hope that kind of makes sense to you. Now, personally, I have to say that I think it is really important that you learn to do this kind of resuscitation using physical examination perfusion parameters. To me, physical examination should still be the bedrock of your perfusion assessment and ongoing reassessment. But you can, of course, use blood pressure and indeed lactate to help in this. And in fact, I'm sure that many of you have heard of so called hypotensive resuscitation. The idea being that you resuscitate your shocked, hypotensive patient in a controlled fashion 
looking to raise their blood pressure from where you are starting up to a low normal endpoint. So, for example, maybe you take an endpoint of a mean arterial blood pressure of 60 millimeters of mercury or a Doppler systolic of maybe 80 to 90 millimeters of mercury. And again, this is done for the reason I'm not wanting to promote any further bleeding. But whenever I'm asked about using blood pressure in this way, I always say two things, really. Well, I often say a lot of things because you, you know that about me, but I typically say two main things. One is that I don't believe that you should just use blood pressure as your means of assessing and resuscitating perfusion. Without getting into the physiology, blood pressure is not the same thing as perfusion. And while it can be very helpful, I don't think it should be used as the sole parameter. The second point I always make is that before you use blood pressure in this way, it is essential, of course, that you can trust your blood pressure readings. The vast majority of people in veterinary medicine are not dropping arterial lines into dogs with hemoabdomen, at least early on, and so are relying on non-invasive blood pressure measurement techniques. If you are going to use blood pressure in this prescriptive way, to resuscitate patients, then you really need to be sure that you're getting reliable, sensible, believable readings that you can reasonably trend. So by all means, use blood pressure in these patients, but please do that sensibly and alongside your physical examination, not instead of. And the other thing that you've got to remember is that there is quite a lot of debate about where all these numbers that get bounded about in terms of blood pressure targets have come from. What is the evidence underlying them? What is the evidence that impacts or shows that specific thresholds may impact on clinical progression and clinical outcome and so on? So keep all of that in mind as well when you are using this kind of blood pressure directed resuscitation strategy. In this paper, the authors then go on to talk about the use of synthetic colloids alongside or instead of crystalloids. I'm not going to say any more about that uh, in this podcast episode, but if you've not already heard it, then please do listen to episode nine of this podcast in which I talked about resuscitation fluids and crystalloids versus colloids. The authors also mentioned potentially using hemoglobin-based oxygen-carrying solutions, or HBOX, as a means of providing both oxygen-carrying capacity and some colloidal support. Oxyglobin is really the only one to my knowledge that is currently available, having been off the market for some time. And actually, I think it is still not readily available everywhere. While it may seem to make a lot of sense to use oxyglobin for the resuscitation of hemorrhagic hypovolemia, it will, of course, prove somewhat expensive for many of the dogs that we see with non-traumatic hemoabdomen. And we need to factor the cost into our risk-slash-cost-to-benefit analysis. Of course, I can't have one podcast episode go by where I don't mention risk-benefit analysis. And in this scenario, it's a risk-cost-benefit analysis because of the price of oxyglobin. Now, one of the big things that the authors do not mention in their section on restoring effective circulating volume is so-called hemostatic resuscitation. They do talk about transfusions later on in the context of maintaining oxygen carrying capacity, but not as part of the initial resuscitation. 
I'm not sure if this just reflects the fact that this paper was published seven years ago or whether it reflects the fact that potentially unsurmountable obstacles in providing hemostatic resuscitation to veterinary patients. So what is hemostatic resuscitation? Well, it's essentially saying that when patients bleed, they obviously lose whole blood, which contains not just the water component, but also red blood cells, in other words, the oxygen carrying capacity, also platelets, and proteins, which obviously include a variety of clotting factors. And there are, of course, other blood components that I'm not going to mention. The premise is that when you resuscitate a bleeding patient with a crystalloid or indeed a synthetic colloid, well, you're not replacing like for like. And the patient has lost whole blood and you're essentially replacing it with water plus some electrolytes, maybe some buffers, maybe some minerals. And not only are you not replacing like for like, but you're also potentially causing additional harm in other ways, diluting the blood that they have left, promoting so-called dilutional coagulopathy, and so on. So hemostatic resuscitation is essentially the idea that in hemorrhagic hypovolemia, you resuscitate the patient with blood products, trying to replace like for like. In human medicine, this would involve transfusing packed red blood cells, plasma, and platelets. <clears throat> there is a growing body of work in human medicine looking not only at the benefits that this might offer versus resuscitation with a crystalloid, but also looking at what relative proportions of these components might work best in different patient populations. And they're also investigating the use of specific clotting factors and clotting factor combinations, and indeed antifibrinolytics, especially tranexamic acid. But of course, the problem is that this approach is very unrealistic in the vast majority of veterinary practice environments. I think that many people simply would not be able to access the required blood products routinely in their practice in the required time frame. But even if you do work in an environment where you could get your hands on at least some of these blood products in the time frame that you need them, so that you could use them for resuscitation of the hemorrhagic hypovolemic shock patient, there is still that other huge elephant in the room, which is the cost to the patient's carer for this sort of approach. Depending on the individual patient in question, this could run into the hundreds or even thousands of pounds or indeed US dollars. So extrapolating hemostatic resuscitation to veterinary clinical practice is something of a challenge, to put it mildly. Okay, the next bit in the paper is about diagnosing hemoabdomen, um, clinical laboratory valuation and abdominocentesis. When you measure the packed cell volume and plasma total solids in the blood of a dog with a clinically significant hemoabdomen, you may well find evidence that a significant bleed has occurred. But obviously that doesn't localize the bleed to the peritoneal cavity. It just alerts you to the possibility, if you weren't already considering it, that your patient might have had a significant bleed. Remember that when bleeding occurs, both red blood cells and protein are lost from the circulation. In the first few minutes following hemorrhage, the absolute number of red blood cells and plasma protein molecules will be reduced. But PCV and total solids are unchanged because PCV is a percentage 
Total solids is a concentration, and neither is a measure of absolute quantity. Fluid will then move from the interstitial compartment into the bloodstream, diluting the remaining red cells and protein and causing a decrease in the measured PCV and total solids. <clears throat> now, it takes a while for this fluid shift to occur and therefore for dilution to occur, but it's not possible to be too precise about the exact length of time in clinical patients. In dogs, the spleen contracts in response to hemorrhage and expels a large amount of stored red blood cells into the circulation. Therefore, PCV may remain in the normal range for a while despite a low total solids. In other words, with blood loss, total solids is usually expected to fall first, followed by PCV in dogs. And then as yet more time passes, PCV will also fall depending on whether hemorrhage is ongoing, the severity of any ongoing hemorrhage, and any treatment instituted. Clearly, if you're worried that a patient is bleeding, one of the things you need to do is to evaluate them for systemic coagulopathy as best as you can in your practice environment, so with respect to platelets and especially clotting factors. As I mentioned before, dogs with bleeding splenic hemangiosarcoma, for example, can definitely develop a consumptive coagulopathy, so you may find some abnormalities in clotting times, for example, but you really do not want to be missing a systemic coagulopathy such as anticoagulant uh, rodenticides or angiostrongulosis as the cause of the hemoabdomen and end up operating on these cases. Now, one point that the authors make is resuscitation efforts should not be delayed while awaiting laboratory results, and I couldn't agree with that more. Okay, so you start your resuscitation, you have some emergency database blood work going on, and of course you have to figure out, firstly, that the dog actually has free abdominal fluid, and secondly, that the fluid is consistent with recent hemorrhage. As I mentioned earlier, nowadays this fluid is increasingly detected using focused ultrasonography, which may also be used to guide the aspiration. You can obviously do blind abdominocentesis, if you have suspicion of free fluid. But I would say that if you're not currently engaging with your ultrasound machine, assuming of course that you have one in your practice, if you're not engaging with it for this type of purpose in emergency patients, then I would really strongly urge you to do so. Blood that is lost into the abdomen and other cavities often has an echogenic appearance. And when analyzed, the fluid will be grossly sanguineous but should not clot. I'll have a PCV that is similar to, but remember that the PCV of the fluid could be lower, it could be the same, or indeed it could be a little bit higher than the patient's circulating PCV. And this fluid will have red blood cells, and there may be the occasional example of erythrophagocytosis, and there are typically no platelets on cytology. Now, Although you don't need to do cytology to diagnose hemoabdomen, I would strongly encourage you to do it because I think it's really important that you exclude the presence of a concurrent septic process, which would then make surgery an emergency following stabilization. Now, we know that the vast majority of dogs with hemoabdomen do not have septic peritonitis, but you really don't want to miss the case that does 
because obviously that's going to affect your discussions with the clients, your approach to resuscitation management and potential need for surgery in these cases, and not just potential need for surgery, but the potential urgency for the surgery. I would also encourage you to beware of overinterpreting fluid that's aspirated from any body cavity as being consistent with hemorrhage purely based on gross appearance, so just by eyeballing it. It is not unusual for fluid to grossly appear consistent with bleeding, only for the PCV to be measured and to then find that maybe it's sort of 5% or something like that. So the PCV measurement can be really inconsistent with a clinically significant recent uh, bleeding episode. So don't just eyeball the fluid and say, oh, yeah, this is blood. And I've definitely come across people in the past that have done that and thankfully have you know gone on and actually checked the PCV in those samples. The authors also say, repeated paracentesis during stabilization and hospitalization provides information to monitor the progression of intra-abdominal bleeding. An increasing trend in the abdominal PCV that parallels a decreasing trend in the peripheral PCV indicates ongoing or active hemorrhage. I would just add that especially when we are using crystalloids or indeed plasma, but not actually transfusing red cells, that we need to be aware of the fact that this can potentially affect both the PCV of the systemic circulation and indeed the PCV of the abdominal fluid. And so things do not always progress in quite the clear-cut fashion that some resources tend to suggest. Okay, so that brings me to the end of this episode part one of a two-part series on canine hemoabdomen. In the second part, which as always will be published in two weeks' time, I will discuss more of the main points from the review article, including maintaining oxygen carrying capacity, arresting the bleeding, the possible use of abdominal counterpressure, and so on. I hope that you found this first part interesting. And look, if you have any comments or questions, and you can let me know in the next two weeks, then I may be able to respond in the second episode in part two. As usual, you can download a transcript of the episode by going to vetecsmalltalk.com forward slash episode forward slash 15. And there you will also see a list of some papers that informed this podcast episode. So that's vetecsmalltalk.com forward slash episode forward slash 15. If you would like a copy of the main review article on which these episodes are loosely based, then do email me on shailenjasani at gmail.com. You can use the contact form on the website. You can tweet at vetemcc or message me via the Veterinary ECC Smalltalk Facebook page. And lastly, I wonder if you could do me a favor and leave a rating and or review on iTunes. Can you do that for me? I would be really grateful. And the next episode will be in two weeks' time. Until then, do take care of yourselves. Bye-bye. Thanks.
Thanks for listening to this episode of the Veterinary ECC Small Talk Podcast. Please share your thoughts and comments on www.veteccsmalltalk.com or hit us up on social media. Until next time, keep up the small talk and the jibber-jabber. Yeah.